So let's pray. We're expecting, Father, wanting you to feed our souls through your word. We have poured our souls out in worship, in song, in prayer. And now as we open your word, would you pour back into us? Speak to us, Father. Use your spirit as you promised you would. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I like mile markers. I know that sounds a little strange, but <clears throat> mile markers tell me a whole lot about where I am in my journey, um, where Emily is in a journey. For example, when she would drive out to see her parents a little while ago, uh, she, she'd call and we'd be talking, and I'd say, what mile marker you are at? She's out here in the turnpike. She's at mile marker 226. I know exactly where that is. Um, because that's the exit that she takes. And I, I know, well, she's 15 miles from that exit, so she'll be there soon. There's a rest stop not far from there. And I like mile markers. Um, some of our brains are just wired uh, that way, and mine is one of them, I suppose. And I like the metaphorical mile markers in life as well. This week I passed two. On Thursday, Emily and I celebrated 43 years of marriage together. Cool. That is a mile marker. Good job, hon. Good job. On Friday, we celebrated an incredible mile marker that no one saw coming. Many of you have prayed for our grandson, Gideon, and some of the challenges that he faces. On, on Friday, Gideon turned seven. Unbelievable. There's something about mile markers that remind me where I am in my journey, and it gives me pause to just think. Sometimes I grab a cup of coffee, sit in my comfortable chair. Emily knows where that is. Uh, sit in the little office I have at the house there. Sit back here in my office, and I just think and I pray. I thank God what he has brought me through, and I know what I'm in, at least somewhat. Mile markers help me along the way. In five days, I come to another mile marker. Thirteen years ago, on Thursday, my dad passed into the presence of God. Um, another mile marker. Now, we guys, we, <clears throat> we don't always handle grief well. Sometimes we're not sure what we do. We kind of push our way through like a bull in the china shop. We do what we need to do. Perhaps it was with that in mind that I had a Christian counselor who was on the staff of the church where I was pastoring at that time. He came to me knowing that uh, Dad had passed away, and he offered me three questions that would help me in my grieving process. And I have hung on to these, and I review them not just at mile marker with Dad, but at other key times as well. The, and some of you might find these questions helpful too. They help me to process. So the first question was, what have I really lost? Some of you that have recently lost a loved one might find some help in, in the grieving process. What have I really lost? On one standpoint, I realize I've lost nothing because I know right where Dad is. I haven't lost him. I know where he is, and I'll see him again. <clears throat> but there are losses. There's losses in terms of fellowship. There are losses in terms of some of the wisdom I would either hear from him or see in his life that would flow, and I'd say, oh, that's how you do that. See how Dad does it? And I would learn from his wisdom. I have lost that now. The second thing that the counselor told me would help would be 
to think about what still remains. <clears throat> what lessons have I learned from dad in his life, and how can I use those things today in my life? What still remains? A lot still remains from my relationship with dad. The third question, what are my hopes? Certainly, my, I have the hope I'll see him again. I know that, the Christian hope. But I also hope because of dad's life that I will be a better husband, a better dad, a better grandfather, a better leader, a better pastor, a better man. I find it helpful at the mile markers of life to think like this. It kind of restores perspective to my life. Now, I'm fully aware that some of you did not have a good relationship with a dad. It happens. We live in a broken world. When you consider the three questions, you might say, first question, what have I lost? Nothing. What remains? Pain. I'm really sorry for you. Third question, what are your hopes? I hope to be a better person than he was. Okay. I understand it's hard. No matter what your relationship was like with your dad, you could take these three questions and go to our great heavenly father who is perfect, and he will help you with this. As hard, as good, or as mediocre as it has been, he will help you. Most of us learn a lot from our dads. We are impacted by our fathers for good, for bad, indifference, whatever. As I've taken some time with my mile markers and I anticipate my mile marker on Thursday, of dad's home going, I began to let that form some of my sermon today. And I went back to the scriptures and I've decided to pursue three good and godly men in scripture and use them as a challenge to us dads to be all that we could be as dads, as husbands, as godly men. I've selected the lives of three good and godly men. They're great men. And yet each of them teaches us something in the way that they handled the difficulties of their lives. Each of them, good and godly, had their failures. We can learn from their goodness, their godliness. We can learn from their failures. The first of these three is probably the least known. His name was Eli. He was a priest in the Old Testament, a Jewish priest who lived during the time of the judges, and he worked in the tabernacle doing all the important work of a priest, offering sacrifices, leading praise and worship, and all of those things. He was a good, he was a godly man. If you know your Bible, you'll know that he had two sons, and they were not good or godly. They were actually wicked men. They followed their father's footsteps into the priesthood. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, we read, Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Wow. That is an awful thing to say about someone. No regard for the Lord. Could not care. These are priests. Now, Eli, good and godly man, but not his sons. 
We know from some of the reading in 1 Samuel chapter 2 that when people would come to the tabernacle to offer sacrifices, Eli's sons would sometimes take the sacrifices and they would take some of the meat from the sacrifice before the sacrifice was even made, clearly against what the scriptures taught priests were to do. They just wanted their share of the meat. They could care less about the sacrifice. In fact, in the same chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 17, this sin of the young men, taking these two young men, taking the meat before it was offered as a sacrifice, was very great in the Lord's sight. For they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt, with great dishonor. This doesn't mean anything anyhow. Who cares? That was their idea of the sacrifices. Now, one would look at this scenario and say, Eli was a good and godly man. Boy, his son sure didn't turn out. What happened? I think the more important question to ask today is, why didn't Eli deal with that? Here in the life of Eli, the issue that we're talking about is, it is just so necessary to hold to biblical standards. In a world like theirs, in a world like ours, it's too easy for a dad to look the other way and to not hold to biblical standards. In the case of his sons, his sons were priests in the tabernacle where he served. He served as a good and godly priest. He allowed his sons to do this. How do I know that? 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22 and 23 says, Now Eli was very old. He heard everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with women who served at the entrance to the meeting, of the tent of meeting. So he said to them, why do you boys do these things? I heard from all the people of these wicked deeds of yours, Eli knew what his sons were doing. Himself, good and godly. But he did not hold his family to biblical standards. Undoubtedly, there were other priests. He would have never tolerated this from other priests, but he tolerated it with his sons. The need to hold to biblical standards. Dads, we have to do this. It's hard. Sometimes we are that foundation in our families. We need to do it with love, not judgmentalism. And we need to do it realizing that our children, as they grow up, they will make their choices. Some of them may choose to walk with the Lord, and some may choose not to. You've probably heard that little idea of families. Good kids come out of good homes. Good kids come out of bad homes. Bad kids come out of good homes. Bad kids come out of bad homes. There's only four options. Children will make their choice. And certainly, as they become adults, we cannot control their behavior, but we can hold to biblical standards and be clear and consistent. This good and godly man, Eli, this was the mistake he made. Some years ago, the CBMC, the Christian Businessmen's Committee, on a national basis, they conducted a study. 
they determined in their study that 75% of children who have a dad that is very active and consistent in his faith, speaks up for the Lord, holds to Christian standards in the home, 75% of those children go on and they serve the Lord. They're active in their own faith. In contrast to that, where a dad is not active in his faith, and the mom is, only 15% of the children go on active in their faith. This does not mean moms don't have a significant impact. Of course they do. This statistic speaks to the phenomenal impact that a dad will have if he is consistent in holding biblical standards. Josh McDowell in his book, The Dad Difference, says that the average teen in our churches today spends about two minutes in meaningful conversation with his dad. Josh McDowell further says, he says that about uh, 25% of teenage Christians claim they do not, they have never had a meaningful conversation with their dad centered on the teen's interest. Do we take God's biblical standards and keep them in the forefront of our conversations with our children? We don't want them to think Christianity is simply another option in this world. Dads, we must hold to biblical standards. That's the first challenge from the first of the three examples, Eli a man who struggled to hold biblical standards, good and godly in his own life. Find any challenge there, dads? I do. Here's a second one, a very famous dad, King David. I think King David's situation teaches us to lean into difficult tasks. David was a great man of God, a good, a godly man, a great king of Israel. In fact, under his kingship, the boundaries of Israel expanded further than at any other time in its history. David was a great warrior, a great musician. He wrote about half of the Psalms in the book of Psalms in the Bible, 74 out of 150, just about half. Good man. In fact, God said of David in Acts chapter 13, verse 25, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to do. A good, a godly man. Yet David's life challenges us to lean into difficult situations. He had his share. In 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5, the scriptures say, David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not not failed to keep any of the Lord's commandments all the days of his life. What a great statement, except one exception in the case of Uriah the Hittite. So here's this good and godly man living consistently, but at one point in his life, there was an exception. What dad doesn't mess up at times. Even the great King David, good and godly man. Do you remember the case of Uriah the Hittite? Do you remember the story? If you read back in your Old Testament, David had a list of 
30 of his mightiest warriors uh, who did great exploits in warfare. Uriah was one of those 30. This is one of his top warriors. At one point, while Uriah was out fighting the fights of the king on the battlefield, David took Uriah's wife, seduced her, got her pregnant, then arranged to have Uriah killed in the battle to cover his tracks so he could marry Uriah's wife that he had gotten pregnant. This was his one exception. God confronted him on it through the prophet Nathan. He repented of his sin. Interestingly, David's family did not recover. Sometime later, one of his sons, Ammon, Amnon did something very similar to what Daddy David did. He took a woman who was not his wife. He didn't seduce her. He raped her. The scriptures say in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 21, when David heard all of this about what his son Amnon had done, he was furious. I would note that while he was angry, he did nothing about the situation. He was passive. He never disciplined his son. Even as king, he never disciplined his son. I'm sure he hoped it would all blow over and go away. It did not go away. It tore his family apart. Two years later, another of David's sons, Absalom, was so upset with what Amnon had done. He was so upset that David had not done something to justify this situation. Absalom was so upset, he rose up and he killed Amnon. Absalom lost respect for David not dealing with this situation. Eventually, Absalom would try to take over the kingdom and become the next king, pulling a coup d'etat on his own father. David's family never recovered. I wonder why David was so angry but did nothing to discipline his son. Could it be guilt over what he had done with Uriah and Uriah's wife? Sort of like, well, who am I? You know, look what I did. He was, kid, can't you see? You're doing what I did. But he never did anything about it. One of the challenges that comes to us out of David's life is to lean into the difficult situations. Dad, if we do not lean into the difficult situations in our lives and step up when we need to, we lose respectability and our families may never recover. Just like David. I think we can learn from this godly man, but dads, today is there something that you need to lean into, some difficult situation? Naturally, of course, you want to skirt it. It's hard. There's a lot going on in life, and you're not sure what to do. You cannot play the ostrich with the head in the sand. If you do, your family may never recover. This happens to men who are good and godly.
a third example. Going beyond Eli, holding to biblical standards, going beyond David, leaning into a difficult situation, not skirting it. Next, we come to Solomon. Hear the lesson, the challenge is to be committed to our wives. King Solomon was gifted with a great gift of wisdom, an incredible gift of wisdom from God. First Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 11, the text says, So God said to him, <clears throat> I will give you wisdom and a discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be anyone like you again. What God is saying is he is going to give Solomon a special gift of wisdom based on these verses. We would say, never has there been such a wise person, never will there be such a wise person again. This man was gifted with a special gift of wisdom from God, and it showed up in the way he lived. He became an amazing king. Building projects like you can't believe, listed among the seven wonders of the ancient world, this man in his understanding, not just of building, but also of botany and of animals, and he could speak to so many things in life, and people came from all over the world to hear his wisdom. He had incredible wealth. I think if you did the inflation-fighting calculations from 3,000 years ago, you would probably find he is wealthier than even the wealthiest person on planet Earth today. The scriptures say that he wrote over 3,000 Proverbs. We don't have them all. We have several hundred of them in the book of Proverbs and some more in the book of Ecclesiastes. He was a great, he was a godly man, but he made a mistake. He was not fully committed to his wife. Now, some of you who know your Bibles will realize there's a book in the Bible called Song of Solomon. Sometimes it's called Song of Songs, the song of all songs. It's actually a song about King Solomon and his early wife, a Shulamite girl. He was deeply in love with her. It was an amazing relationship. But he did not stay committed to her. 1 Kings chapter 11. Two slides of verses here for you. The first slide, we'll park on it for a moment. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not <coughs> marry with them because they will surely turn your hearts away after their gods. So for all the Israelites, including the king, don't go to the foreign women. But Solomon went after many foreign women. He drifted from his marriage. The second slide, nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He shouldn't have, but he did. He pursued them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. You do the math and you see he had a thousand wives and they led him astray. I know all the questions about the wisdom guy with a great gift of wisdom. What's he doing marrying a thousand wives? I, you know, all the wisecracks. I, I get it. Notice the rest of the text. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. 
Gentlemen, as I look at this good and a godly man and the mistake that he made here, I understand that faithfulness to God starts in our homes and our marriages. And yeah, we have to hold the biblical standards and we have to lean into the difficult things of life, but we must be committed to the wives that God has blessed us in our lives with. <clears throat> now I realize we live in a fallen world and some of our marriages have been destroyed. There are broken homes and it does lean to some insecurities sometimes with children. I, I get all of this. Solomon's wrong step in not living in that loving relationship of the marriage was the beginning of his heart turning from God. I would suggest to you that we need to do it for our hearts. We need to stay committed to our wives and our children need to see that. God's purpose in marriage has always been one man, one woman for life, for common people, for kings, for all of us. Don't drift from that. Even a man with the greatest gift of wisdom any human being has ever had, that gift of wisdom could not save him from this downfall. Don't allow the drift to start. Kids will sense this. Some dad might say, yeah, you don't know my wife. My guess would be she would say the same thing about you. You don't know my husband. Together, get on your knees and figure this thing out and what commitment looks like in your marriage. Do it for your marriage's sake. Do it for your sake. Do it for your wife's sake. Do it for your kids' sakes. It does not matter how smart, how wise, how rich you are. Your kids need to know that the hearts of their moms and their dads are deeply committed to each other. So, dads, there are many things that will try to steal the commitments of your heart. Careers, money, priorities, pressures, another individual, your natural weaknesses and addictive patterns. Any of these things can creep in to rob you of the commitment to your spouse. Three men, good and godly men, three great challenges, hold the biblical standards, lean into the difficult situations, and demonstrate commitment to your spouse. One of the mile markers that I use in my life is also the hymn book. Not just hymns, choruses that are meaningful to me. There's one I've been meditating on recently. Uh, it's written by a great man, Martin Luther. Uh, he wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He actually based this in Psalm 46. Our God is our fortress, that is our refuge, a very present help in a time of need. Even though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, and he goes on with these incredible hypothetical situations where life is bombing us. But he says, 
Our God is our fortress in such times. So he writes the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Now, Luther was smart. He knew this was an important message based on Scripture that had to be communicated. So what did he do? He went into the taverns and bar rooms of the day, and he picked a popular tune, and he set that tune with this solid Christian theology of this hymn based in Psalm 46. Yeah, contemporary barroom tune. That's what Luther did. And he created this, and if I was in better voice and still not back, so I won't try to sing it, but verse 2 says, Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? In other words, guys, if we're just going to go on and live in our own strength and be confident in our strength, we're going to lose. But notice what he goes on to say. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You know who that is, don't you? Jesus. We got the right guy on our side. The challenges are huge. They are great. We need help. We need strength. We need encouragement. We need insight. We need forgiveness. We need humility. We need salvation. We got the right guy on our side. Jesus. So today, with all the complications of 2020 that we're, or 22 that we're experiencing, we got the right guy on our side. Holding the biblical standards, leaning into the difficult situations, staying committed to our spouse. We got the right man to help us. Jesus. Perhaps you're here today and you need salvation. Perhaps you're online with us today. You need salvation. You have the right man on your side too. And he loves you. He really does. And he paid the price for your sin that keeps you out of heaven. He paid the penalty for your sin so your sin can be forgiven and you can be with God forever. That's the good news of the gospel. We got the right man on our side. The question is, are you on his side? So today, would you bow your heads with me at the end of this Father's Day sermon? Dads, happy Father's Day, but let us just rejoice. We have the right man on our side. And we have a perfect Heavenly Father to guide us and help us with the challenges of this life that even the good and the godly cannot handle on their own. We all need help. If you are here today, even if you're not a dad, but you need salvation, would you turn to the right man, Jesus, for your salvation? Your sin will be punished by a perfect, eternal God. But if you will believe that Jesus loved you so much that he took the penalty for your sin when he died on that cross, your sin can be forgiven, and you can be with him for eternity. So, Father, as our heads are bowed before you, for anyone in the sound of my voice on YouTube or in this auditorium today that does not know the Savior, they're not sure if they know the right man, Jesus. May they just offer that simple prayer of confession of sin. God, I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me, please. I know Jesus took that penalty for me, for my sin. Please forgive me based on what he did. 
Lord, we know you'll do that because you promised to. That's your plan of salvation. We rejoice in it. Today, for the dads in this room and online with us, please encourage their hearts. May they be men who truly understand we got the right guy on our side. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.